WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Welcome to another episode of Out There Radio. My name is Joe McFall. And I'm Raymond Wiley. And as usual, we're in a strange, <laughs> strange place here at WUOG yep, tonight. Yep. We're in a we're in a, a closet type dungeon like room known as the Prod Room. <laughs> <laughs> the news board yeah. is gone. And and we felt like Erin, our producer, deserved a lot of room out there in the DJ booth. She needs room. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Room, room to breathe, and so we're here in the in the pride room tonight. So we we hope everything goes well. It's sort of cozy for me because I started off here at WUOG recording little public service announcements in this room. So it's kind of neat. Anyway, we have a very interesting show for you tonight. If you haven't tuned into us before, out there radio is our weekly series about oh history, politics, religion. Or, or we might say the occult conspiracy theories and the paranormal, or we might say hidden history or parapolitical. Parapolitical. There are there's so much that we try to cover here, but we we try to we try to point out the fact that it is truly a strange world, and so you're definitely going to get plenty of that tonight. The, the main topic of our show tonight is going to be Kabbalah, Kabbalah, as it's sometimes pronounced. It's uh, mysticism of Hebrew uh, origin, and uh, it's sort of been, you know, well covered in the news lately with prominent figures such as Madonna being sort of wrapped up in in what what they describe as a new Kabbalistic movement based on the New Age. Well, we're going to talk about much heavier stuff tonight when we get to our Kabbalah uh, discussion, and can you tell us a little bit about our guest tonight, Joe? Yeah, our guest is Mark Tibbetts. He's a local... Occult expert. Yeah, local occult expert. And a person who's experienced as a practitioner, Kabbalah, done serious academic study of it, and has even lived in Israel, lived in the midst of of the places where Kabbalah sort of thrives in a very traditional sense. And so he's going to give us a sort of wide overview of what Kabbalah is and sort of what uh, the different methods and history of it are. But, But, of course, before we do that, we've got plenty of different things to talk about so first strange things falling from the sky everywhere all over the globe this is this is from sea to shining sea apparently (laughs) well really only in florida and russia maybe elsewhere too i'm assuming elsewhere as well but um, so are these the same objects no actually the first the first little tidbit comes from comes out of Tampa, Florida, where a large like an eighteen inch frozen block of ice fell on this guy's car out of nowhere. Of course, some people are pushing like a UFO angle, but some most people think it's probably from a plane eighteen inch block of ice though <laughs> yeah, yeah what yeah. color was it 
ice colored, I assume. The, the articles I have don't say. I don't think ice has any base color, Joe. It's clear uh, if it's not colored by something like, oh, I don't know, the waste from an airplane, <laughs> for example. Um, which, I mean, so what, what, any theories on this, Joe? I think it's from a plane, personally. Okay. But, beca- but although it has happened, it, it, it has happened uh, fairly often within recently around the country. It happened, in, I guess, in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, and it, it, one fell into a California gymnasium. This was last year, so evidently there's ice falling from the sky. This could be a sign of the apocalypse. So, anyway, well, it's uh, some other weird weather news. And speaking of the color of ice in Russia. Over a 570-square-mile region, that's 1,500 square kilometers for those of you across the pond, some oily yellow and orange snowflakes fell. They were oily to the touch and had a pronounced rotten smell, according to the Omsk environmental prosecutor Anton German, who was quoted by the Russian news agency Itartas on Thursday. Evidently, the snow, so it was oily, it smelled awful, I mean, rotten, you know, and it had um, four times the normal levels of iron in it. And they still that's still unexplained. I mean, 600 square miles almost. It's a pretty big area. Like, so how long did the rain? I mean, this was like a downpour. Like there would be little there would be puddles of this stuff just sort of laying around. This is Siberia, man. Siberia. Like the, the pictures I see, the place is covered with this orange, yelly, disgusting snow. (laughs) yeah so they're saying you know the population in this area is like twenty-seven thousand people too um it's like five districts where this orange yellow yellow orange disgusting rotten smelling snow covering almost 600 square miles (laughs) well apparently this is not the only strange news (laughs) Let me start over. Apparently, this is not the only strange news breaking out of Russia today. Sorry, man. Oh, okay. Okay. Were you not finished? No, I was just pushing you. I just wanted to push you. Okay. (laughs) Apparently, this is not the only strange news breaking out of Russia today. We have our very own Austin Gandy, our special recurring special guest in the studio today, and he's got some news. Austin, Um, Austin, do you think that our news pieces are related? uh, Absolutely, though I can't quite figure out how yet. Um, but the uh, the Invisible College has been monitoring current conditions on the astral plane to bring you a, another hard-hitting story. Um, this one from our, our agents deep inside the esoteric order of Dagon. Uh, bring us this story from, which just broke today in the Komsomoloskaya Pravda, Russia's top-selling newspaper. The title of this, this article is Russian Fishermen Catch Squeaking Alien Ellipses and Eat It. Now, <laughs> this is this is a very interesting story. Um, in the Semibalki village, uh, residents in this uh, this Rostova region caught a strange creature two weeks ago. Um, there was a big storm in the Sea of Azov, and apparently, um, after this storm, they were they were hauling in a catch, and this very large creature, um, I assume in their nets, um, which weighed about a hundred kilograms, and at first appeared very shark-like, was apparently emitting bizarre squeaking sounds. And as they, as they haul their catch in onto the land, the, uh, the fishermen at first, they, they, they first think that they've caught an extraterrestrial. 
Um, and for that reason, they, they used a cell phone camera to, to capture it on film. I'll tell you where you can find that video later. And it is hard to find because this is a very fresh story. Um, yeah, I, from what you were saying, we may be the first U.S. news agency. That, that's right, Out There Radio is a U.S. news agency right. now. Uh, we may be the first U.S. news agency to break this story. It's actually dated tomorrow. Isn't that's that right. correct? Do not look for this story in the liberal, left-leaning mainstream media. Let me say that right now. <laughs> they, will, they will conceal this. But anyway, the, the footage in this video um, clearly shows the creature's head, body, its long tail, and vaguely eerily humanoid face in, in nice, clear lighting. It's a, it's a good long video, no blurring or shaking camera or anything. And in the, in the preceding weeks, um, rumors of a captured alien quickly began to circulate. But when ufologists and marine biologists alike congregated in Simibalki later, uh, earlier this week, they were heartbroken to learn that the fishermen had eaten the unidentified organism. <laughs> and this is the part that is really interesting. Whether this thing was an, an alien or some other organism, the, the fishermen, when asked why they had decided to devour this being, the fishermen merely shrugged and said that they were not scared of the creature, and so they decided <laughs> to use it as food. And one of the fishermen described the meal as, quote, the most delicious dish he had ever tasted. That, remind, that reminds me of a, an Onion headline. I was telling you guys this earlier, but scientists discover delicious new species. It's like they discover a new primate in South America, and so they eat it. It's delicious. I don't know. It's hilarious. Now, now we shouldn't get too excited about this this extraterrestrial sighting. The chairman of anomalous Pheno of the anomalous phenomena service, one Andrei Gorodov, cautions us, saying it may not be an alien after all. It may, in fact, be a mermaid, um, <laughs> as there are many legends about mermaids living in the Sea of Azov. Uh, nevertheless, specialists of the anomalous phenomena service have never confirmed those fairy tales. On the other hand, and this is a direct quote, we do not deny the possibility of other forms of life in the Sea of Azov. Now, the spokesman for the Rostov-based zoo, Alexander Lipkovich, uh, he contacted local ichthyologists and asked their opinion about this Azov alien. And uh, they said that the fish bears resemblance to a sturgeon. However, he goes on to say, it was an, in an extremely interesting individual. I have never seen anything like this before in my whole life. And they ate it. <laughs> now, Austin, you showed me this video right before we went on air. I, I mean, it was creepy looking. It looked like it had eyes and, a, you know, a little smile on its mouth. But to me, it looked like a, a ray. I don't know. That's, that's certainly true. It's, um, it has been described as anomalous and, and unidentified by ichthyologists and marine biologists. However, the, the really interesting aspect of this story is while they still thought it was an extraterrestrial, these, these fishermen, these quaint little fishermen, decided that it would be the best thing they could do was to, to cut it up and to serve it for dinner. Maybe this thing excretes orange-yellow foul-smelling snow into the air. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. It's possible. But what 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 but what um boggles my mind is you know I was expecting some sort of ritual element to this, you know, where <laughs> oh we found this this alien this this being that's so above us. We must consume it for its power. No, nothing like that. It was hungry. the it was the most delicious meal I ever ate. That was it. They wanted a snack. It's, talking about it like it's like a McRib sandwich or something, you know. <laughs> Who knows, though? McRib might be alien meat. 
I mean, <laughs> that I would not be surprised at. That's why it's limited time only, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, any, <laughs> anyway. You, thank you very much, Austin. That was a wonderful story. Yes, thank, thank you very much. Now, of course, my news segment, as always, a big downer, right? <laughs> But we gotta keep we gotta keep our minds active, you know what I'm saying? It's good to be lighthearted, but it's also good to keep our eye on the ball. So that's what we're gonna talk a little bit about tonight is a law that you may not have even heard of, but that is going to affect you pretty severely starting next year in two thousand eight. And that is the Real ID Act of two thousand five. Now this is actually an article from the uh local school newspaper just you know we quoted them last week we'll quote them again this week and i was actually very surprised pleasantly surprised that even this small blurb about this this uh fascist law <laughs> showed up in the paper now i'll just i'll just read this very short excerpt a revolt against a national driver's license begun in maine last month is quickly spreading to other states the Maine legislature on January 26 overwhelmingly passed a resolution objecting to the Real ID Act of 05. The federal law sets a national standard for driver's licenses and requires states to link their record-keeping systems to a national database. Within a week of Maine's action, lawmakers in Georgia, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, Vermont, and Washington State also balked at Real ID. They are expected soon to pass laws or adopt resolutions declining to participate in the federal identification network. The law supporters say it is needed to prevent terrorists and illegal immigrants from getting fake identification cards. So this is sort of the surface of this thing. And we'll get back around to this sort of a real ID rebellion, as it's called, within the states in a few minutes. But let's let's talk about the Real ID Act. Um, the most significant... First of all, let me say that this act was passed back in 2005, and it will not go into effect until next year. So it didn't get much press when it was first passed for this very reason, and people sort of missed the fact that it had gotten sort of gone through in 2005 because, I mean, pressure had started to mount against the administration even as early as then. Now, the stipulations of this act are that it was sort of a, a bill to get a real, or excuse me, a national ID card through without calling it a national ID card. The idea is that all states will have to have the exact same information on driver's licenses. So they'll all have the same fields of information. They'll all provide the date of birth, the, you know, the driver's license number, the weight, whatever the specifications are of the law. That's sort of the surface of it. Well, furthermore, they'll have to share their databases of these names and information with each other state, which is something that doesn't happen now. I mean, if you go from to another state, they're not going to know you've got a parking ticket here in Georgia, for example. Well, let's let's take this even deeper. So, there, so th this makes it to where there is one list of people throughout the United States. It's like, here's the list. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's very similar to if you took a list of all the social security numbers. It's just an easier way to, for police, for mostly, to access information from people from other states. Well, let's take it even deeper than that. It also requires that there be, and this is the real, the real kicker here, that there be an RFID chip implanted in your driver's license. Now, m many people may be familiar with an RFID chip. It doesn't require any power coming into it. it. It stores a small amount of information on it, and basically a receiver bounces a signal out into the air, and if the signal is bounced off this chip, it, the machine reads back the information printed on it, even though the chip is very tiny. 
tiny enough to fit in your driver's license or your passport, for example. Small enough to be injected under your skin and your arm or forehead. Right. You yeah, and you may and your arm or forehead, Joe. <laughs> you may well, have. I mean, isn't yeah, that what we're talking about? Yeah, this is sort of what we're getting to. It is sort of like the mark if if you believe in biblical prophecy. So. Yeah, I mean, you may have seen news articles about people getting these sort of tracking devices implanted under their skin so their kids don't get kidnapped, that kind of stuff. This, there was a real, there's been a real news push about sort of pushing this on people. And this Real ID Act is sort of the end result of that because you're going to have an RFID chip in your driver's license. Now think about this. I mean, the, the argument is made that these chips cannot be read at range, like that you can only read them at a few feet away. But that, that isn't so much a scientific fact as it is just a fact of the hardware that we've seen on the market and what it can do. And furthermore, uh, that says nothing to the placement of these readers, of the RFID readers. If these things are everywhere, right. then there's, it doesn't matter that it can only read from a few feet away because you have to, you'll always be going somewhere that can be tracked. Right. And let me give you uh, first the mainstream example of this. This is you walking into the bar and sliding. And not, they're not even being a doorman at the bar anymore. The door is locked at the bar. And you have to slide your driver's license and it has to verify who you are for you to get in the door. Okay, for example. Or to get a pack of cigarettes. You've got to scan it on the machine. So convenience store owners, for example, would love something like this. And that's sort of the way it gets sold. Well, let's take a few other scenarios. Let's imagine I'm driving down I-20 towards the Alabama state line, okay? When I cross I-20 with my driver's license sitting in my wallet, I pass by a detection grid. Ding, ding. Mm -hmm. It'd be easy enough to throw it across the road if it were on either side of the road, mm -hmm. okay? So, so now, this, for example, if it's here in Georgia, the Georgia Department of Transportation has a record of every time someone has entered or left the state, when they left, when they came back. Thing two, imagine you're sitting in your neighborhood and a man, and you know, the, the typical Jack Black character in the van drives up. He's got a little, you know, emitter on top of his van or whatever, and he can, he can probably look at a uh, schematic of the neighborhood based on a map and see where everyone is, where everyone is standing, or at least where their where driver's license is. So if he sees movement, he knows that you've got your driver's license in your wallet. He knows exactly where you're standing. Mm -hmm. They can keep track. If you had a whole grid of these things, I mean, you already have a grid of cameras in almost any city location now. Imagine a grid of these emitters. You would literally be able to tell where everyone goes, where everyone congregates, who congregates. This is really Orwellian, if you think about it. The one thing is go that saves us at this point is that it's not as far as I know, illegal to walk around without your ID. Right. And that's the thing. But get this. This is the real, like, horrifying punchline of this law. You will not be able to buy an interstate plane ticket or an Amtrak ticket or maybe even a Greyhound bus ticket without having one of these national real ID compliant cards. Okay, and that's the real kicker. It's like it's like freaking Casablanca. You know what I'm saying? Papers, please. You know, that's exactly what we're talking about here. This is next year. Okay? So what I want to know is, okay, because for every technology like this, there is some way to disable it. So, for, for instance, are, the, are these things res, uh, responsive to, like, strong magnetic fields or something like that? Is, I mean, can you 
is there going to be a way to disable this thing from working on your license? And if so, is that going to be illegal? So, no, no, seriously. Who knows if there's a way to, to block this sort of thing? But the, but, the, but the sad fact of it is, who would do it? I mean, most of the population, if this, if this law goes through... If it happens, if it's really made a reality, most of the population is just going to take it. And they're going to say, if you're not doing anything bad, you have nothing to fear. You know? See, I think this is where the hard Christian fundamentalist right actually, I mean, for, I would say that largely they wouldn't support something like this. I mean, maybe in this case they are when it comes to something like terrorism. I mean, because they're, that's how they're framing it. They're framing it about terrorism and immigration. Mm-hmm. So, right, they, they might have the right support. But I think that, like, Christian fundamentalists see the mark in this too heavily for them to really support it in the long run. Yes, the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar in Revelations, it talks about how at the end, of, at the end times, you know, the, the Antichrist will come. He'll rule over the earth as a tyrant, mm-hmm. and he will make every man or woman take his mark on their forehead or on their hand. And you will not be able to buy bread. Red, uh, without the mark. And if you don't take the mark, they'll chop your head off. So, you know, biblical prophecy, it has a certain metaphorical ring to it, but here it is right here in front of you. But luckily, states balking at the uh, mark of the beast here. And the main legislature has already, overwhel- like it says here, overwhelmingly passed a resolution objecting to the law. And Georgia, Wyoming, Montana, New Mexico, Vermont, Washington State have all introduced resolutions. Now, we, we try to be pretty objective about the main topics we cover on each show, but let me be a little editorial right here. If, if what I just described scares you in some way, if, if this is not the future you want, if you don't want to like march down that road towards a fascist dictatorship, a control Orwellian state, which is exactly what I just described in this law to you, then... You know, go to your state capitol, make an appointment with your your representative and and lobby just like we had on the uh, just like Craig Hill was talking about on the broadcast last week in regards to the whole 9-11 truth issue. Here's an issue that there isn't much controversy on. People seem to overwhelmingly be against this unless, of course, they're lobbyists for Lockheed Martin or Northrop Brumman or, you know, big defense contractors or, you know, FEMA or whatever. This is the time to push uh, your representative, your state representative. I mean, this is a person who's probably not very much unlike you because, I mean, it's not like a congressman or a senator uh, up in Washington. You know, these are people that are much more accessible and they're probably much more down to earth. So if you show them the reality of this and describe to them the reality of this, especially if you can present to them a sort of overview of the RFID technology as it is, like, for instance, how Walmart uses it to track products as they come in and out of the store, then they'll start to understand, you know, product going out the door of Walmart is no different than, you know, Raymond Wiley going across the state line and getting tracked like a box of Nilla wafers. (laughs) So... Yeah, Joe, do you have any final thoughts thoughts on this real idea? Do you do you think it's right for me to suggest that that we lobby for this, that we push our uh, general assembly members in whatever state we're in? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of Confederate, I know, but well, you know. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I I almost feel lucky for once that we live in Georgia and that our state legislature is actually doing something about this. And you know, my motivations for not liking this are don't aren't biblically based at all. Like, I just I don't like fascism. You know, call me crazy, but I just don't. I don't really believe in some sort of like antichrist figure, blah, 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 all that 
but yeah, go go talk to your representative. They're there to represent you. We say this all the time. Go talk to your representative. They're supposed to represent you. And if you don't, you know, if you don't want to have to, if you don't, if you don't want to be tracked everywhere you go for the rest of your life. Right. Or have to make the decision to never travel across state lines again, basically in a Greyhound bus or an Amtrak train or on an airplane. I mean, think about the airports where this is really going to get you. Imagine having to make the decision between having a freaking low jack in your driver's license or not being able to get on a plane. You need to take action now before you're forced to make that decision by the man with the M16 right. or whatever, right. you know. And if for whatever reason your state does um, pass something like this and allow it, uh, maybe find out a way to disable it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm right. not encouraging, you know, I'm encouraging subversion, but. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably some way to set up some sort of field in your yeah. home, yeah. at least in your home, to where, you know, whatever. Yeah. You've seen people, and I'm not encouraging this, I'm not encouraging you break the law, but you've seen people take the little strip out of the $20 bill in a movie or whatever. But, of course, you probably wouldn't be able to go into the right. Mark of the Beast, you know, uh, scanner machine, you know, right. whatever. Right. So, anyway, I, I know we're laying on the biblical imagery kind of heavy <laughs> here, but it's just it's too easy to pass up with yeah, this. Yeah. Like, I mean, seriously, are the neocons just trying to serve this up to us? They're they're all talking about how God's on their side, but then they're then they're like manifesting everything the Bible says the Babylon will yeah, be at the end. Of, you know, it's kind of absurd. It's very absurd. It's kind of absurd. So anyway, um, that's that's about it for our general sort of news segments and uh, overview of the weird things that have been going on this week. We're going to go to a break, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment with an hour-long interview with Mark Tippett, local occult expert and Kabbalistic practitioner, about the art of Kabbalah. So uh, stay tuned here on Out There Radio. My name is Raymond Wiley. And I'm Joe McFall. Keep listening. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Out There Radio today. Uh, this is uh, Raymond Wiley. I'm here with my co-host Joe McFall, and we are joined in the studio by a very special guest, one of the Southeast's leading experts on Kabbalah, the occult, paganism, and, you know, cool stuff like that. Yeah, welcome, Mark Tippett. How are you today, sir? Glad to be welcome. here. Welcome. Glad to be Thanks here. Thanks for coming on the show. So you're here to talk to us today about <laughs> Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, as, you, as I've heard you pronounce it many times. Is that, is that the correct way of, of saying the word? There are a bunch of correct ways of saying the word. As long as you're understood, it's fine. Kabbalah is a English pronunciation. It's also a Yiddish pronunciation, and there are lots of people in Israel and America and Europe and all over the world who pronounce it Kabbalah all the time who practice it and there are also people who pronounce it Kabbalah which is the Hebrew Israeli accent okay and so that's the whole difference between them right so. so for those of you who don't know I mean I guess we, we probably mentioned this a little bit earlier in the intro but Kabbalah is uh, what many people refer to as uh, Hebrew or Jewish mysticism mm -hmm. and uh, it has interesting links to the occult and different streams of magic and esotericism that we've talked about before on this show and we're going to get to some of that today but we're also going to try to give you a good primer a good 101 course on Kabbalah because I don't know if you've noticed this Joe but oftentimes 
whenever the word Kabbalah comes up in some sort of discussion, it's mm-hmm. always sort of conveyed to you that it's so deep, so thick, you're just opening up such a huge can of worms that you might as well not even talk about it. Well, but there's also the whole like pop cultural element, which Mark, I know you're going to talk about that at some point, that makes it seem as if it's so shallow. Madonna Kabbalah. Right, exactly. So I hope we get to get talk about that a little bit too, because that's very interesting as well. Right, because not only has it in like we were, like I was just saying, it's not only influenced the esoteric movements we've talked about, but you know we talked just a few episodes ago about the New Age movement and elements of Kabbalah have crept their way into uh, into the vocabulary and into the tool set of many a New Age shyster, and I'm sure we'll get mm-hmm. to that. I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later on. Before the Mark, can you just tell us? I mean, what for the for our listeners, what are we talking about here? What, okay. what is what is Kabbalah? Well, I like to define it as an open source programming language for the human soul. So I'll explain that definition some. But first I want to go back, and Raymond, you mentioned this common definition. People say it's Jewish mysticism. I really don't like that definition for two reasons. The first is it's not entirely Jewish. There are, as you mentioned, there are Christian forms of it. There are pagan forms of it. There are, uh, I'm not sure what to call them, forms of it. So it's not entirely Jewish, and it's also not entirely mysticism. There is a mystical core to Kabbalah, but there's a great deal of material laid down on top of that. So it touches on subjects ranging from philosophy to psychology to neurology to, you know, I want to talk some about uh, some of its connections to cybernetics and information theory today. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's a lot of theosophical speculation built on top of what's really supposed to be a very practical, hands-on, how do you go about the day-to-day work of being a mystic. Interesting. So in, in that sense, it sort of, it's sort of reminiscent to me, Joe, of uh, a lot of the things uh, our guest Keith Winkler was saying about Freemasonry. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's, you, you get this idea that it's this uh, huge, magical, occult system, but when it comes right down to it, it, it it's often used as a tool for, for man living his life on mm-hmm. a day-to-day. Freemasonry is probably best described as an implementation of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is, like I said, a good metaphor for it is that it's a programming language. Well, you don't sit down and and run a program. You don't start Java on your Mm -hmm. computer, right? You start something written in Java. The same way, as far as somebody actually being a Kabbalist, you have to have some specific lifestyle that you live. And, of course, the whole thing develops in the context of traditional Judaism, and so it's all tied up with the observance of the biblical commandments and the... Talmudic halacha, the the whole what's now orthodox Jewish way of life. That's a specific implementation. But Kabbalah also comes with the tools to sort of reverse engineer the implementation and create new implementations. And what happened through the course of the period from about the 1100s to about the 1600s is that some several different groups in Europe, non-Jewish, well, Christian groups, primarily. By that time, you're also starting to get humanism into the mix. So they weren't entirely Christian groups. But anyhow, they created a new implementation of Kabbalah, and that was masonry. Or developing into masonry. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, maybe with a hundred years or so there where we don't quite know. But right, we'll, and, we'll, and but we'll you get also, more, right? there's, there's the whole phenomenon of design by committee. 
where they, you know, they weren't the only formative influence in the development of masonry by any stretch of the imagination. Right, right. But so. we'll get and we'll get back to the history in detail because, well, you know, you know me, I, I can't yeah. resist it. Yeah, Freeman likes he soaks this up like a sponge. Yes, and and Mark and, and Mark is uh, I know you're well versed on it. But before we get to that, let's let's talk for a moment about what Kabbalah is. What people who consider themselves Kabbalists, what do they do here in the modern world in our in our, in our day-to-day sense? What are, what are some of the practices? Well, that's a funny, funny question. First of all, people who consider themselves Kabbalists. Well, the only people who consider themselves Kabbalists probably shouldn't. Uh, what I mean by that is I've met many people who will say, I study Kabbalah, I'm interested in Kabbalah. Some of these people are manifestly great spiritual teachers and and world authorities on the subject but they wouldn't say oh yes i'm a kabbalist it's an arrogant thing to say it's something that so it's it's, in other words something people should say about you after you're dead right it's the equivalent of saying i'm a saint okay (laughs) and the reason for that is is what what kabbalah really means what the word means so more on definition uh the the literal meaning of the word kabbalah is reception and the explanation of that that you usually hear is something about an oral tradition and how it's handed down from one person to another, and that's the meaning of to receive, to receive the tradition itself. Well, that's nonsense. That's not what it means at all. First of all, it's not an oral tradition. And second of all, there's already another word in Hebrew for the oral tradition. It is a big part of things in Judaism. So what Kabbalah actually means, to receive what? And the answer to that would be uh, the traditional explanation is to receive prophecy. That's really what Kabbalah is for. It's, it, it's a group of different traditions, and they've gone in a lot of different directions, but they all have a common ancestry in the traditions of biblical prophecy. So you're supposed to be receiving prophecy. You're supposed to be receiving the secrets of the Torah. You're supposed to be receiving the presence of the divine. And that's what Kabbalah really means. Interesting. So, in in other occult texts that I've read, it's it's uh, been likened unto like the power of a biblical figure like Moses, and how he had sort of these sort of, sort of superhuman kind of abilities, you know, strike the rock and you know turn his spear, his staff into snakes and things like that. Do modern cab- I know in history Kabbalists, other Kabbalists have, but do modern Kabbalists consider themselves tapping into the power of a tradition like that that we hear about in these Bible stories, or well, or is that sort of just fa- is is that even taken as fantastical to them? There's electricity like what flows out of your wall socket. You know, there's some energy. It's maybe enough to kill you. And then there's like all the energy in the sun, right? The kind of Kabbalah we do today, there's enough power there to be dangerous. You can hurt yourself with it. But you talk about someone like Moses, and you're talking about something like the sun. It's just, it's a whole different scale. Yes, it's the same sort of thing. It's still related to the the prophetic current, which I'll get into what that is in a minute. But it's a whole different level of magnitude. And in fact, there's a tradition within uh, sort of exoteric Judaism non-Kabbalistic Judaism that says that prophecy is closed. You can't even get there anymore at all. And uh, if you get into the details of Kabbalah, they say, well, what we're doing isn't really prophecy anymore. It's really the Holy Spirit, which has a whole different meaning in, in Judaism than it does in Christianity. But 
it's a it's a related spiritual state. Let's put it that way. So, in order to explain how it's related, I guess I should go ahead and explain this this whole idea of a of a circuit in Kabbalah. There's the physical world, and there's the spiritual world, and our place in the world, according to Kabbalistic thought, is basically that we are here to weave those two worlds together. And there is a circuit that we follow in doing that. It's referred to as running and returning. The process of running is the process of taking your connection to the divine, that that inner spark of divinity that we all have within us, and becoming a creative agent for that inner voice. And bringing the divine into the world. And that also has sort of subjective aspect to it and a, and a sort of objective aspect to it. And then there's the process of returning, which is the process that completes that circuit and, and where running brings the divine into the world, returning elevates the world toward the divine. So right off the bat with Kabbalah, and we'll see this is, this is sort of the driving mechanism behind its historical influence, there is this idea that we're supposed to be actively engaged in the world. There's something that we're supposed to be doing here. And that's as much as the particular techniques that might be distantly related to things that the prophets did, this whole orientation toward the world that we have a place in history and that history is the unfolding of some sort of spiritually significant process is the core idea of the prophetic tradition that comes through Kabbalah into the Western tradition. I've heard the term great work, the great work thrown around a lot. Is that what you're describing here, the great work? Yes, indeed. That is exactly what I'm describing here. In Hebrew, the great work is called tikkun olam, uh, which is a phrase that literally translated is repairing the world. And it has two aspects. It has an outer aspect, which is the realization of the kingdom of God on earth, quite simply. There are historically two interpretations of how that happens. And in Christianity, in European history, theological history, they come to be called postmillennialism and premillennialism. And uh, premillennialism is the kind of Christianity that's on the upsurge right now. With Southern Baptism and Pentecostalism, they are premillennialist traditions, which basically means that their interpretation of prophetic history and and the apocalyptic sequence of the unfolding of events is that first there's this big battle and all of the good guys win the battle and then there's the establishment of the kingdom of heaven and it's it is now and it has always been a very how do I put this so it doesn't sound rude God is definitely in the driver's seat and we don't really have an active role to play in that whole process. We just sort of sit back and watch it happen and wait for these miracles. In postmillennialism, the understanding is that there is a, a progressive building of the kingdom of heaven and that we have to sort of create the throne before the king will come and sit on the throne. And that's where you get this whole idea in, in liberal civilization of, of progress it comes directly from the Kabbalistic idea of providence, of bringing providence into the world and having an active hand in the historical process and, and the divine role in the historical process. And of course, that's what a prophet does. So, Mark, can you talk a little more about this, 
this great metaphor of an open source programming language for the human soul. Sure. Because Absolutely. I get the feeling that, that what you've been saying for the past few minutes, I mean, this is really what you're talking about, but I want you to just maybe well, talk a little more okay. explicitly. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Raymond asked about the great work, and I mm. mentioned there are, there are two aspects. There's an outer aspect to it, and that has <laughs> been manifested historically as the revolutionary process and the whole process of liberal civilization and, and trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the outer aspect of the great work. That's only half the story. The inner aspect of it is no matter how great your ideas are, if you're not a good person, then you are not going to be part of the solution. You're going to be part of the problem. So if you're really interested in doing the great work and making the world a better place, start with yourself. And you mentioned the Masons. They have this motto, a Mason is a good man trying to become a better man. That idea of trying to better yourself is the driving idea behind the inner aspect of the great work, the subjective aspect of it. And it's an alchemical process. So the, the rhythm of Kabbalah, the, the circuit that I was talking about, that is worked out in your life by finding the balance between these two aspects of your life. There's, there's the inner process of refining your character and refining your spiritual sensitivity and tuning into the divine. And then there's the outer aspect of how do you take that and, and use it to make a meaningful contribution to society and to the world. So how, how is it exactly that you use Kabbalah to sort of reprogram yourself, to, to sort of break from your, your past ideas? Because I think that's, when you talk about a programming language, I think that's sort of what you're getting at, is the fact that you can use it to change your own code, as yeah. it were. Well, I want to be, be clear about there are implementation details, and they are implementation-specific. And so if you really want me to answer the question, how do you do Kabbalah, mm -hmm. then you have to say, how do you do Kabbalah as an Orthodox Jew? How do you do Kabbalah as a Mason? How do you do Kabbalah as an occultist? The answers are different. And furthermore, even once you've got it split down sort of a different approach, there's still, there's your individual life. Kabbalah is not something that you can get shrink-wrapped from McDonald's. You know, the, the Madonna Kabbalah just doesn't really, it's not Kabbalah. It's, it's, it's a good marketing system is what it is. You have to create your own answers to that question. You have to implement Kabbalah in your own life. What it does is it gives you a toolkit in order to do that. It gives you some approaches and some models and some suggestions. And if you do happen to be a Mason or an Orthodox Jew or an occultist, well, then it gives you a specific implementation. I'd rather not try and talk about those, though, because it, it'd be like trying to, to read source code to you over the radio. <laughs> probably not be interesting. Well, I don't know. Some of our listeners, I would listen to that, maybe, depending on what, you know, what well, it does. <laughs> Joe, you like, spend okay. way too much time programming oh, anyway. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Well, what I'd like to do is, is try and present an abstraction. For yeah, that. That, that would be great. Okay. Maybe some interfaces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, well, let's just plunge into this, because there's a resonance here. A lot of the models and ways of thinking that were originally developed in order to do Kabbalah are exactly the models and, and mathematical constructs that were used in order to, to get computer science started. And things like object-oriented programming and 
incremental and iterative development of, of software projects, these are, it, it could be Kabbalah. Mm. In fact, I've often thought that, you know, the medieval writers could have saved themselves an awful lot of ink if they just had these processes. <laughs> they could just refer to these processes instead of spending hundreds of pages trying to explain it by allegory. So, how do you do Kabbalah? Let me, let me try and actually answer that question. Okay. <laughs> I, keep, I keep sort of darting around it. There are four parts to it, four stages to it. Uh, and then there's a fifth that sort of ties the four together. So there's an understanding of the structure of the psyche in Kabbalah. And it basically says we're made up of four parts. And it, it relates to the four elements. And you know, if, if you've studied or read anything about Kabbalah, you've probably come across tables of correspondences. Kabbalists love models, and we love mapping between models. And so we just love our tables of correspondences. And the four elements are, are a great key for mapping between different models. In these four areas, there are these qualities. And uh, that's a literal translation of the word midot. I'm trying to think of how to explain them. We have behaviors, and they arise from urges that we have at a lower level, at the subconscious level. All people have the same set of urges, but we have them in different degrees. And so we're each unique, a unique composition of, of universal elements. And those that I just mentioned are basically them. All right, so the way Kabbalah works is that it addresses each of those elements. And it does that through, first of all, addressing Earth, the outer expression of your behavior, by saying that you need to be involved in civic participation. You need to make your life in the community and in the market and in your political environment an active expression of your values. That's step number one. And if you're not doing that, then all the rest of it, no matter how spiritual you are, you go off and, and completely remove yourself from the society and live in a cave on top of a mountain somewhere, and you might be really tripping on God, but it's completely irresponsible. And Kabbalah is, is firmly grounded in this idea of social responsibility and social activity. So that's the first stage. You've got to be doing that. You've got to be doing your duty to God, country, and neighbor whatever that may be. The second stage is involving yourself in sacred learning. And of course, if you're doing sacred learning all the time, then you produce these enormous works of Kabbalah that, that everybody says are so complex. And while they are, after thousands of years of, of people having these profound insights and then other people having commentaries on them and other people having summaries of the commentaries and so forth, there's this huge literature. What element does this relate to? This relates to air. Okay. This is this is the intellect. And this is also this can be one of the traps of Kabbalah is that you can just go completely off into basically it becomes an academic exercise. And just real quick what Mark while you're saying while, while you're saying that is that is that true for any of these four elements that you can get too embroiled in any single thing? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So absolutely. really it's all about balance of these four things. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. There's this sort of academic, intellectual approach to sacred learning, and there's a sort of, there's the approach to sacred learning that the rabbis take, the whole rabbinic Talmudic tradition takes, which is also very pragmatic. It's, you know, how do you implement this rule set? 
how do you how do you take the Bible and turn it into a lifestyle? And that's certainly significant if that's your mission in life. If you're a traditional observant Jew, that's what you want to know. But when you take that same kind of legalistic lawyer approach to thinking about inspiration and creativity and being a moral agent in the world, well, maybe it doesn't map so well. So sacred learning is really not that kind of learning. Sacred learning is really a process. Uh, well, I want to talk about the theater of the mind. Maybe I wish we could kind of back up and do that first. Maybe we can <laughs> through the magic of radio. No, I, I, I'm afraid not, Mark. You're going to you're gonna have to hit us with the rest of those elements. All right, so. all right. <laughs> this is not nonlinear. All right, well, <laughs> the purpose of sacred learning is that you are creating a symbol set. If, if you go off and have this prophetic inspiration and, and achieve this state of consciousness, of prophecy, then you have to be able to say something. And uh, much like John Dewey, the, the pragmatic philosopher who sort of started the whole idea of having an educational system per se, his understanding of things was that the way that most people grow up their educational process mm -hmm. is a sort of incoherent mishmash of different educational systems that are competing with each other in order to socialize this individual. So you've got the church saying one thing and you've got the state saying another thing and your right. family says a third thing right. and your peers say it's a mess, right? So he, he his whole project with education and you know his Dewey Decimal System and applying <laughs> that to, to the development of the mind was that we need to have some sort of consistent framework. Mm -hmm. Well, Kabbalah says, yeah, that's great. We should, you know, it, it sort of predates his argument, but a lot of stuff in Kabbalah predates a lot of... Right. Uh, so it says, well, okay, so that's a great idea, but what we actually have is grown-ups who have gone through this sort of mishmash, and now we want to clarify, now we want to, to develop that kind of ideal framework. So we need to have a consistent symbol set, a consistent language. And that's really what sacred learning does for you, is it gives you a language to, to go from internalizing information to articulating something creative and new. So that's air. Yeah. And quite appropriately, I have, I have gone on at length babbling away about air. <laughs> Water is prayer and devotion. You know, water has associations with the emotions and that whole system of biological desires. And prayer, and I should, I should stop here and point out that, that prayer means something very specific in Judaism. There is a liturgical structure, and while you might not always be praying in synagogue using the prayer book, you still follow that structure. And so prayer is basically petitional. It's basically an expression of your innermost desires. And what Kabbalah will say is that it's this spiritual process where you're taking these ultimately physical needs that you have and elevating them to a spiritual level. You're saying you're sort of holding them up to the light of the divine spark and saying, here's, here's what I've got to work with. Here are my urges. Now, you know, take that and do something meaningful with it. So that's the process of prayer. What are the Hebrew words for, for these different... Oh, do you really want me to? Yeah, I mean, hit us with them. Come on, what are they? For what? For the elements? Yeah, go ahead. All right, well, earth is 
Ofar or Adama, or there are actually several words for earth. Water is Mayim. Air is Avir, which if you take the Vav in there and you put it back to the original W sound, I'm pretty sure that Air and Awir are just, they're the same word. Fire oh. is Aish. Fire is also, Aish is symbolized by the letter Shin, which looks like the, it's a letter with three points coming up. It looks like three tongues of flame. And if you put the letter Shin for fire in front of the word Mayim for water, you get the word Shamayim, which is heaven. And that's a little example of the kind of linguistic manipulation that's done in Kabbalah. You have one more. Fire. Fire. Ecstatic trance. Now, I've talked about the purpose of Kabbalah is to make you a prophet. Well, what do prophets do? They go off into heaven, right? They go off in, into heaven, they travel through the seven heavens, and they receive messages, messages from angels or from God, and they bring those messages back. Well, how do you do that whole part where you go off into the heavens and receive those messages? That's a set of techniques that are really the unique core to Kabbalah. There are equivalent techniques in other traditions, but they're very different. Can you talk for a moment about these techniques or uh, a few uh, commonalities between different, the, the way different uh, brands of Kabbalah, I guess? Yeah, well, basically the purpose of these techniques talked about want to hack into your own soul and reprogram it. Well, if you watch these old movies before they had the internet, you would have to physically break into the building where they were storing the computer you were going to hack into, right? Now you can, you can do it over the internet. Right. But regardless of how you do it, you have to get physical access to an I.O. port in some way if you're going to hack the system. The same thing is, is true if you're hacking the soul. And the physical I.O. port is, of course, the brain. The way you hack into the brain is through the language center. Mm -hmm. There are also hacks through the visual center, but the thing that Kabbalah really focuses on is language hacking. And so these meditative techniques are... The end result is not that different in some ways from Eastern meditation. I mean, you have an enlightenment experience at the end of the trip. But neurologically, they're sort of opposites. The traditional kind of meditation that most people are familiar with in the West is this process of calming the waves of the mind. That's like, that's the first sentence in, in the Yoga Sutras. Is yoga is the calming of the waves of the mind. You sort of quiet everything down until you get this crystal clarity, and then you can hear the still, small voice of God in that silence, mm -hmm. right? Now that's, that's Eastern meditation. Western Kabbalistic meditation says you do the exact opposite to get the same effect. You completely overload the mind. You overload it with the most information-rich material so that it stimulates the most parts of your brain and you cause this sort of cascading overload. And the way that that's done is by taking passages from the Torah in traditional Jewish implementations of this. You take passages from the Torah or you take passages from the Mishnah, which is sort of the inner core of the Talmud. And you repeat these passages over and over or you may write them down and use various techniques to uh, manipulate the letters and the forms of the sounds. And what you do is basically you're, you're taking these sentences that are incredibly potent with meaning, very specific meanings, 
and you're taking the whole intertextual dialogue of each word in those sentences and all of the associations that those have, and you're sending the whole thing through a Cuisinart. Would you say that this would work for any any text? Yes, I would. So you can use Dr. Seuss, for well, instance. Well, uh, I wanted to talk about the Bible codes some, and this touches on that. So. Um, and we needed to talk about history, too, and, and maybe this would be a good time to mention Raymond Lull, for example, since he did this in a Western Roman alphabet, just exactly both things what we're are, talking about. Both things are intimately connected. So yeah, which, talk which do you want to go first? Okay, Lull first? Yeah, Lull came first. All right. right. Well, I mentioned that, that <laughs> Kabbalah traces its influences back to biblical prophecy. Well, that's its influences. The first time that you actually see a group of people saying, we're practicing Kabbalah, this is the tradition, you know, actually giving it that name, is around the 1000s, 1100s in northern Spain and southern France. And this is an absolutely fascinating period in history. It's one of the most important areas and one of the most, it's like Alexandria during the Hellenistic period. It's like Jerusalem during the time that the Old Testament was written. It's, it's, so the traditions that come out of here are Sufism. And let me qualify that. There are forms of Sufism that come from other places, and, but Ibn Arabi's Sufism, the Sufism that Ibn Arabi was Rumi's teacher, the, the sort of theosophical Sufism that most people who know anything about Sufism, what they know about is Ibn Arabi's Sufism. That comes out of this, this place and time. Is that associated with like whirling dervishes and that kind of yes. thing? Okay. Yes, yeah. precisely. They are they're following Ibn Arabi's tradition. Okay. Uh, now the interesting thing about Ibn Arabi's tradition is that all of the other Sufi traditions go back to one of the followers of Muhammad. And they all trace their lineages very carefully through to the revelation of the Quran. Ibn Arabi said, none of those people were my teacher. I was contacted by a spirit called Akinder, who's a figure from the Quran and represents the esoteric side of... Uh, I have to tell you that anybody who has seen the movie Circle of Iron, it's a movie that was directed by Bruce Lee. It had uh, David Carradine is, is a major actor in it. He's not the main character, he's the foil. Uh, well, if you've seen that movie, then you know this story from the Quran, because the, the plot of the movie is this story about Al-Kinder, who's this, and it's a story about Al-Kinder and Moses. Al-Kinder, literally in Arabic, it means the green one, and, and green is associated with life and abundance, and is the, the living essence of the law. So it's the esoteric side of the law, and then Muhammad sees the, or excuse me, in the story, Moses sees the outer side of the law, the exoteric side of the law. So there's this story of, of Moses is going through this series of adventures with Al-Kinder, and none of it makes any sense until Al-Kinder explains the whole thing to him after the fact. It all seems these incredibly bizarre and arbitrary and maybe even hurtful things that turn out to be exactly the right thing to do at the end. I am drifting. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, you no, know, you're you're good. Know, that's good. Um, what other traditions came out of All right, uh, that right. area? Thank you. That's where I was drifting from. Okay, well, so uh, point being, I, I hope you've seen that movie. If you haven't seen Circle of Iron, then check it out. It's a pretty cool flick, and uh, it happens to contain an ancient tradition from the Quran. You know what year that was made? Yeah. Oh, it, it was a very 70s, 70s? movie. Okay. I don't know. Right on, right on. 
And I have no idea how Bruce Lee got a hold of this story or why he decided to make a martial arts flick out of it, <laughs> but, but it happened. Uh, so Ibn Arabi was inspired by this figure, the green one, and he comes out with this whole system of thought. Another system of thought that comes out of exactly the same time and place is the whole story of the quest for the Holy Grail. That whole story is a story of a spiritual path, walking a spiritual path, being on a quest. And it's very closely parallel to the quest for prophecy. The Holy Grail is the spirit of prophecy. Weren't the uh, heretical sect of the Cathars based out of the same region at about the same yeah, time Yeah, they're, well? they're actually the people who are circulating these first stories of the Holy Grail. So that's exactly the connection right there. And then the fourth major group to come out of this, so we've got sort of, we've got a heretical Christian group, right? And we've got a sort of maybe heretical Jewish group. There's a lot of debate over the next few hundred years after Kabbalah appears within the Jewish community. Is this heresy or not? And we've got this heretical group of Sufis. And, you know, their fortunes have waxed and waned in the Muslim world. These days, uh, my understanding is that most Muslims consider Sufism to be heretical. That's certainly not been true in the past, and it's certainly not true in some places. But my understanding, from what I've been told, is, is that that's sort of the majority view. And then you've got this, this fourth system, lullism, that promotes itself as we finally found the formula for converting all of these heathens, these Jews and Saracens, to the one true way. And it's a lot like Kabbalah. It's a lot like Sufism. It's a lot like other esoteric systems. I'm not tremendously familiar with it. I've mostly read about it through the works of Francis Yates, who has very interesting things to say about it. It's, it's another one of these sort of Neoplatonic Pythagorean systems that manipulates numbers and, and has big interesting things to say about the way the universe is fit together. Right, and then the, and the, and the sort of punchline of this way of looking at things is that God is three. He's a, he's a triangle. He's God in three parts. And therefore it proves for a person like Raymond Lull, an ecumenical Christian, that, ha, Christianity is right. God is in three parts. He's not just one part like the Muslims and the Jews say. That was basically sort of his punchline, right, Mark, wouldn't you say? As I recall, again, I really I am not familiar with the primary sources on this. So. Okay, I got you. But at least that, that is what Yates said, as I recall, anyway. And I, and I want to thank you on the air here for introducing me to the works <laughs> of Francis Yates. Um, I well, know let, me, let me take this opportunity to try and introduce the rest of the world to Francis. I've, of course, there are parts of the world that are already very familiar with Francis Yates. She's one of the most well-respected scholars in the whole field of history. Her focus was Renaissance history and the revolution that she brought to Renaissance history that sort of started the whole sub-discipline of intellectual history is that she reinterpreted all of the major political and intellectual movements of the Renaissance and Enlightenment period according to these Kabbalistic and Hermetic principles. And by that time they had been really discredited and were sort of, sort of have the the same attitude that people have about them today. That's all a bunch of sort of hocus-pocus and nonsense. 
and and a home to charlatanism. Right. So it was certainly not part of anybody's understanding of of how the great Western way, how the canon was established. But she went back and she said, oh, no, it was all about magic. What are some of her most significant works, Mark? Well, there's Giordano Bruno and what is it, the Hermetic Tradition? Mm -hmm. There's The Art of Memory, which is a fascinating work. It probably her most useful work. In, in the sense of you can actually do the art of memory. It's it's still an important practice. There is... Uh, I think there's the Rosicrucian Enlightenment Rosic- as well. Right. right. And I'm then, trying to right. think of the I'm trying to think of the one where she she analyzes Shakespeare's plays using right. Kabbalistic and Lillian I, symbolism. I know there, that she has a shorter work called uh, The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age. That's exactly it, the one. It was her That's last work one. and it is, and we, we talked a little bit about Lull and his Christian Kabbalah. Well that Christian Kabbalah went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, well still goes on in some places, and she sort of follows that strain through the Renaissance and the Reformation and how it influences all of these I mean, basically Christians to have way different ideas about religion. So she, she looks at that stream and she looks at, like you said before, the Hermetic stream, which we're not going to talk about today, but we'll, we'll get to old Hermes Trismegistus in a future episode, <laughs> I'm sure. Anyway, so let's let's move on in the future. We've only got oh about twenty tw- about twenty minutes here. Oh goodness, twenty five minutes. So okay. we we got to bust through this history, Mark. Okay then. All right. Well, there's this first major formative period in the 1100s, and there are groups in Germany who are doing work that's basically traveling through the heavens. There are these groups in Spain and northern France who are working out the sort of theosophical structure, the model. And there's this guy named Abraham Abu Lafia who comes up with this system of deconstructing language in order to create profound, intense spiritual experiences. And then the next major period of development is about 500 years later. Uh, during the Renaissance, and there are three major centers there. Two of them are Jewish, and one of them is the circle around the Medicis, which included Pico Marandola, who translated a bunch of Kabbalistic writings, and Ficino, who translated the Neoplatonic writings and, and the Corpus Hermeticum. And they get together and they sort of start Christian Kabbalah. So how did um, how did these sort of Jewish mystic ideas get over to to this sect in Italy? Well, there was that first phase. There was a lot of material produced, like I said, in the 1000s, 1100s, and that was the stuff that got translated by Mirandola. And there were later developments also, but that's the core of it. And then at the same time that Mirandola was working, there's a sort of, there's a split in the tradition here. In Prague, there is Rabbi Yehuda Lowe, who's called the Maharal. And there are all sorts of wonderful stories about him. And then the third place is in Israel. There's a town called Sfat. The spelling of it that you see in most books in English is it's spelled like it's Safed, which is based on the Arabic pronunciation of the name. The Hebrew pronunciation is Sfat. It's a city in northern Israel. And in the 1500s, there was an academy established there that took all of the different threads of Kabbalah, all of the different schools that had developed up to that time, and synthesized them and created a single coherent system. And the second person to run that school was a man who is called the RE, which is an acronym that stands for uh, Ashkenazi Rabbi Yehuda, no, excuse me, Yitzchak, 
uh, Isaac Loria. He's generally acknowledged as the greatest Kabbalist of all time. He's like, he's it. There are people who say, you know, once there were, like we were saying earlier, once there was Moses, once there were these biblical heroes, and then the world kind of fell apart, and you don't get that caliber of spiritual leader anymore. But the RE was an exception. He was a, he was a soul from an earlier time. Later, what happens is that the school in Svat and the school in Prague blend together and give rise to what comes to be Hasidut, which uh, the, the Hasidic movement within Judaism is one of probably the biggest, the main form of Kabbalah in the modern world, as far as who actually practices it as, as part of their routine of their lives. Hasidut was started, it's, it's sort of Kabbalah for the masses. It's a populist movement. And it was actually, uh, the man who started it, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, lived at the same time as George Washington and Napoleon. And in many ways, the, the Hasidic movement was the Eastern European Jewish version of the same revolution that was taking place in Western Europe in the whole birth of liberalism. So the Hasidim were introducing ideas of, of popular representation and also things like some, some women's right to education, some other important movements forward. Uh, of course, history has gone on and, and the liberals become the conservatives. And so Hasidism these days is ultra-Orthodox. But originally it was a pretty radical notion. So uh, that's really kind of it because unfortunately the next big development in Kabbalah is that there's this false messiah and there's this false prophet who uses the teachings of Kabbalah and, and turns them into, the, he's kind of the David Koresh of Judaism. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't so. know how well that comment's going to fly <laughs> on this show. Well, okay, but you understand that, so that there, are, there are mainline story. traditions right. and then there are, there are people who just go off right. in a completely right. different direction. And there was this guy who went off in a completely insane direction named Shabbatai Tzvi. And he was probably bipolar. He was certainly, what he was doing was bizarre. But he was hugely popular and a lot of people all over the Jewish world briefly thought that he was the Messiah. This until was in the 1600s? This was, this was, yes, until 1666, which is the year that it became so popular and so many people were selling everything they own and just packing up and being like, okay, the Messiah is here, it's time to move back to Israel, that the Ottoman Sultan started getting a little worried. And so he brought this Shabbatai Tzvi guy to his court and he was like, well, you're starting to cause trouble, so now you're going to convert, or I can kill you. And Shabbatai Tzvi thought about it, and he said, well, you know, there's no God, but, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then what happened was really all of these people who had completely made a break with their lives and packed up everything and, and moved up, they were just in complete shock and a lot of them converted and a lot of them went back and they were like hey this Kabbalah stuff this is bad news so this would be like like L. Ron Hubbard suddenly becoming like a Baptist preacher yes like, exactly <laughs> it, it would be like if, if all of the people who liked Tom Cruise movies and had gone to see Tom Cruise movies over the years briefly really bought into this idea that he's really the second coming of L. Ron Hubbard, right? We, we talked about this last week, yeah, by the way. Yeah. So. Okay. And then, and then when, I don't know, the, the 
spaceship from from the lost continent of Mu does not return, and you know all the guys are left holding their Nikes at the end of the day. Well, people were pretty disappointed, and they were like, "Hey, maybe this whole messianic trip is a bad idea, and maybe this whole kabbalistic reprogramming your mind and and teaching people how to become prophets. Maybe we should just stop doing that. Let's just stop it." And it still has kind of a it has a bad reputation in a lot of Jewish circles to this so day. So it sort of ruined the credibility of the whole movement. Yes, and with the exception of Hasidut, and and the Orthodox world is still divided into uh, there are the Hasidim and there are the Mitnagdim, which means the opponents of the Hasidim. The Hasidim were were they were a populist movement, but they were also a sort of well they they wanted to bring Kabbalah back out of the closet. They wanted to make it accessible to people again. They said, you know, spirituality should not just be about studying and learning and thinking about things all the time. It should it should have an emotional component. And they looked to Kabbalah to inspire that. So, okay, I want to talk a little about what's going on today. Yeah, yeah please, please. Because uh, if you're interested in Kabbalah, uh, you're going to go exploring, and you're going to want to know, well, who are the groups who are practicing it today? Well, like I said, the, the Hasidim are now ultra-Orthodox, and unfortunately, just like most of the ultra-Orthodox and uh, evangelicals and Wahhabists, they are infected with the the virus of fundamentalism. They They are subject to fanaticism, and uh, I cannot advocate tuning in to their worldview. A lot of the material that's produced in English on Kabbalah is, is produced by them, and it's not to say that the material isn't legitimate, it is. And it's not to say that there aren't some incredibly spiritual people within these communities, there are. But there is also this phenomenon of using this material because people know that it's interesting, and they know that people in the West growing up in a secular environment are searching for something. And so they use Kabbalah as a lure. Hey, this is where Kabbalah comes from. Come in, and but then once they once they actually get you there, and I know this because this this is exactly how I found myself in Israel in yeshiva, despite the fact that uh, my 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 family background. I come from a German Jewish family, or like the most left wing liberal Judaism you can imagine. But you know, in my efforts to find the roots of Kabbalah and find the authentic tradition, I found myself living in the West Bank at one point because mm-hmm. they just you know they take you and they take you away and yeah, I was I was sort of a Jewish John Walker Lind for a couple of years <laughs> there and just you know went down the rabbit hole but you came back out I did come back out I, I was I was so like I said I was from a German Jewish family and and my mother got very involved in radical feminism and I was basically raised with the radical deconstruction of patriarchy and my mother's milk and <laughs> So That's I not, just doesn't really jive well with monotheism. Well, it wasn't <laughs> monotheism wasn't the issue really. Um, I I really think that questions of uh, the divine is not something that can be uh, categorized according to number, person, gender, right. or tense. Right. And so these questions of of how many persons are really kind of absurd. And what Kabbalah says ultimately is that any question like that, it's a matter of perspective. It's it's not just completely a matter of perspective. There is something objective there, but it looks completely different depending on your perspective. So 
these modern groups. Right, so yeah, how did Kabbalah make a comeback? Well, I'm not sure that it has. <laughs> I'm really not sure that it has. It's certainly getting a lot of press. I'll say that for it. But there are individual Kabbalists, and there have always been individual Kabbalists. One of the things you've got to understand about Kabbalah that I haven't really talked about much at all is that I mentioned it doesn't really mean an oral tradition, like a lot of people say. Well, it isn't an oral tradition. It's it's physically isolated individuals. There might sometimes small groups will appear. Even the, the great school in Sfat probably had a few dozen students at the most, at its biggest. The tradition is a tradition because the whole activity of the tradition is learning how to communicate on these unseen levels, right? Learning how to, how to tap into the spiritual reality and work with each other on that level. And so there's this sort of inner convocation, this, this inner assembly. But when you try to express that in terms of exterior manifestations, well, we've been trying to do that for thousands of years, and we've met with varying degrees of success. The big things right now, okay, there's, there's Hasidut. And by the way, I, I, let me qualify what I said earlier, because there really are small pockets of Hasidim out there who are not fundamentalists. They, they have an authentically pre-modern worldview, rather than, you know, fundamentalism is, is really a, a response to modernity. It's sort of the counter-revolution. There are the New Agers, the Madonna Kabbalah, mm -hmm. and that is a marketing scheme. It is, it is branding. It's the Kabbalah brand on the same old whatever that they've been selling you as spiritualism or channeling or, you know. Ascended masters. Ascended, yeah, whatever, whatever the, the, this is just the latest brand name for, for an old product. And then there are the occultists, and the occultists are really very experimental. That's really a big part of the point of, of occultism. And so naturally you can't expect there to be some one way that they do things. There's all sorts of speculation, there's all sorts of suggestions for, for how to go about getting into it in Kabbalistic writings. But there isn't one particular group that is a large, widespread group. Now, if you happen to be fortunate enough to, to connect with some people from groups like the Servants of the Light, there are some small groups out there that are doing some profound work in occult Kabbalah, and they are groups, but you're very lucky if you manage to connect with them. We, we see a particular focus in the occult Kabbalah, or for, at least from what I've seen in bookstores especially, on T-shirts even, posters, things like that, a focus on this the logo, which you call the logo for Kabbalah, which is the Tree of Life. And right, just yes, for indeed. Our, yeah, just for our listeners who have seen this Tree of Life symbol before, perhaps on a Tool album or, you know, uh, you know, in books about the occult, and you really didn't know what you were looking at, tell us about this symbol. How does it relate to Kabbalah? What, what, what is, is it that mean? all about? What is it all about? Yeah, well, there are several different versions of it, and uh, if you read books on the occult, then you will probably find some really interesting Renaissance diagram with all sorts of little squiggles and, and marginalia, and it just looks like the most fascinating thing in the world, and what could all of those symbols mean? And they don't. The thing about the, those drawings is that they're metamodels. They're explaining, here are several different models, several different maps of the universe, 
here's the way they fit together. So it's, it's, a, it's a key. If you don't understand the individual layers that it's made up from, then trying to interpret the whole thing, it's just, it's pointless. Now, having said that, what then, if you don't get into those details and parse out those layers and spend years studying Kabbalah, what should the tree of life mean to you? And I think that the best way to explain that is to say that when you look at that figure, you should see a web there. Uh, what it's teaching you is that the universe is, is interconnected. And uh, the, the circles on there, the spherot, they represent states of being. They represent ways that the divine expresses itself in the world in terms of motivations and causes and goals and meanings. And then there are all of those paths between them, and they represent the, the web of reality that emerges from that. So when you look at the tree of life, that's exactly what you should see. You should see the tree of life. You should see that cosmic ecosystem that's made up of the interweaving of the material and spiritual worlds. Mark, can I, I really get off on this whole uh, language and mysticism idea. And obviously, look, what Me you've been too. talking about, it's, 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 that's what Kabbalah, sort of the core of it is, it seems like, I yeah. mean, as far as uh, what the individual can do. Can you just talk a little bit about how language, how, well, what your take on language as it relates to spirituality and how it relates to reality itself and just what is the role of language in, I mean, in, in the way we are, the way we be. Gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> the way we are. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know that's, well, like let a, me that's, talk a, about that's a long riff probably, uh, but it, it it's, can, it's, it's probably potentially a very long riff. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about angels. There are lots of different conceptions of angels, and I don't mean to, to tread on anybody else's. Uh, let me just say uh, Kabbalah defines angels. It has a stipulative de definition, and it's based on the literal meaning of the word angel. It means messenger. In Hebrew, it's, it's uh, angels or malachim. It means exactly the same thing, messengers. In the Talmud, there's a statement that defines what an angel is. It says, for every blade of grass, there is an angel that commands it grow. Well, now, what is it that commands the blade of grass to grow? I mean, in our modern scientific understanding of things, why, why, why is it a blade of grass and not a chicken? Why right. is it growing? It's, it's genes do. It's genes yeah. do. Yeah, information right. does. So it's genes. It's programming, if you Encode will. information, right. yes. Sure. Okay, well, there's, if you, if you look at the structure of the physical universe, what you see going on is there's this time-space matrix, and there are time-space events, right? And that's it. That's the whole physical universe. What are those time-space events? What's happening there is that information is being exchanged. And with the, the two laws of, of third mode dynamics have been rewritten according to information theory so that all of the laws of physics, instead of being expressed in terms of, of heat being the basis of our understanding of entropy, mm. information is now right. our understanding of the basis right. of entropy. So the more uh, information there is in a system, the less entropy there is in that system. Well, that's, okay, so that's the physical world, and there's, there's the, the, the physical encoding of information. Information always has to be physically encoded. In order to be transmitted, there has to be a signal. 
Sure. That gets into Kabbalah's understanding of why we exist in the physical world at all. Why do we have bodies? If we are spiritual beings in our essence, why are we here in this physical world? Mm -hmm. Well, that's why. It's because you need a physical world in order for anything to happen. Hmm. You okay. need to have okay. an encoding system in order for there to be signals for information to be right. exchanged. Now, what's so precious about information is that meaning arises from information. And that is, you know, when you, you look at that word information and you think about the root of it, form, and that whole platonic tradition of there are, there's the spiritual world of abstract ideas out there in the ether somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then there's this physical world of, you know, atoms and all this substance, all this material stuff. And somehow they get together. Somehow it does, you know, you study philosophy, it, it doesn't ever talk about how. Well, science now has an explanation of that how, of how information actually happens. But it only has the bottom-up perspective. It doesn't have the top-down perspective, which is the angle that Kabbalah has been coming at the same question. So it, Kabbalah really meets cybernetics in information theory. Hmm. And it has been, you know, cybernetics talks about what, what does it take to have a self-organizing system? And what you do with a self-organizing system is, is that's what you need in order to have goal-oriented behavior. So Kabbalah has been talking about goals mm -hmm. for all of this time. So it, you know, that's where it meets. Mm -hmm. That point of contact between the, the physical world of events and information and the spiritual world of meanings and purposes, that is sort of the essential moment. So a unit of meaning, that's the definition of an angel. Hmm. A unit of meaning is, is a signal. It's, it's something that can be communicated. It's a message and an angel is a messenger. So, and then let's go back to the, we talked about this sort of software programming metaphor, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, so if the whole world is sort of the matrix and, and God is, is the programmer or the capital G, right? <laughs> that's, that's where, that's where uh, masonry gets its, its big G is from geometry. Hmm. God is the geometer. Right. right. Uh, There's well, that great uh, William Blake uh, picture of, is, I guess, is that God in that picture with the, he has a compass? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Right. Right. So God is the programmer who creates the matrix, yeah. creates the universe, right? And all of the messages that are moving back and forth in that program are the angels mm -hmm. that make up the whole universe is made up. It's just a, a web of, of angels. Those angels weave together into more complex structures. And Kabbalah's understanding of the soul is that it is a weaving together of angels. We don't have just one simple purpose in life. We're, we're pushed and pulled in all sorts of directions. There is an ecosystem of angels in the soul, and they form competing and cooperating interconnections. There's this component structure to the universe. Small angels go together to make bigger angels, and those bigger angels have emergent properties, mm -hmm. and those are archangels. That encompasses the whole concept of self-organization in the universe, right? Would a... Uh Someone who follows this system then maybe suggests that they conceive of God as something that's an emergent property of the universe then, as if, you know, if angels then messengers, information. That's a... Yeah. 
we are stumbling into theology, which is like quicksand. What Kabbalah says about God Mm -hmm. is that God is off the map, that we are talking about the, the, the map of the territory is the physical and spiritual world, that manifold. Right. Well, that whole process is a process within God. We don't know exactly what that means. That's just words. And the thing is, I, I can't tell you the number of different spiritual teachers that I've gone and sat in front of and heard them start some lengthy lecture with something along the lines of, the ineffable one, the right. all, the great ultimate cosmic being is completely <laughs> unknowable and undefinable. And let me and say again, ineffable, right? right. <laughs> and now let me tell you all about it. Yeah, of course. What Kabbalah says is <laughs> that great ultimate one, that, that true, unique, divine presence, that ultimate ground of being is completely ineffable. So shut up about it already. <laughs> right, right. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. You're supposed to have a relationship with it. Mm-hmm. but it's not a relationship that's mediated by the intellect. But still, the, the way to that relationship is related to language in some way. Yes. Right? It is related in some way from what you've said. To well, that, that relationship has to be encoded. It has to... Uh, there's uh, you know, an understanding in, in Jewish theology mm-hmm. It's not quite the word I'm looking for. But anyhow, there's a commandment to love God. There's a commandment to love your neighbor. All of the other commandments are commandments to do something right. for particular physical action. And so the rabbis say, well, what about these two? These are emotions. How can, you, how can you command somebody to feel a certain way? And they respond, well, maybe they're not about emotions. Maybe you feel love, and that's part of the process of loving, but maybe love is really something that you do. Well, okay, not maybe. Actually, it is. Mm-hmm. I wonder where I was going with that. <laughs> I think you're going right towards maybe some final thoughts because we've only got about a minute or two left with you today, Mark. Okay. So anything you want to wrap up with? Well, Joe, you wanted to know about language. Yes. See, this is uh, the, the, the RE, the greatest Kabbalist who ever lived. He never wrote anything he had to say down. Hmm. Uh, it was left to one of his students, and his explanation was, every time I start talking about this stuff, I just get completely muddled up because it's all interconnected, and it's all... Just yeah. so big. All right, so the thing about language is, is that it connects to the rest of our brain. And mm-hmm. Kabbalah says that it connects not just to the way that our brains are structured, but to the way that reality itself is structured. Mm-hmm. And you go back again to that, you know, the, the special effects in the matrix, you sort of you scratch the surface of reality and you see all this code, all of these Pythagorean numbers flowing underneath. Well, Kabbalists see letters and numbers. Mm-hmm. But underlying everything, there is a narrative structure to the universe. And so if you can break into that narrative structure in the mind, then, then there's a resonance there, and you can do some really interesting things. I wish we had like four more hours to talk about this, Mark. Exactly. Joe, we need to wrap this thing up with some announcements, don't we? Well, if you like our show, visit our website, www.outthereradio.net. Yes, that's right. Or you can send us an email uh, out there, radio at gmail.com. You can also send me an instant message on AOL Instant Messenger. Our screen name 
is out there radio. We'd like to thank Paranoia Magazine for uh, trading ads with us. Read this, it. Uh, read it. Read, read it, it. Check it out. Uh, in fact, Madonna in her Kabbalah outfit oh, yeah, was a, was on the cover. I think two issues yeah, ago. Just a few issues ago. So yeah. uh, always dovetails back into that, doesn't yeah. it? Anyway, I also checked out um, our favorite conspiracy theory comic, Chris Lacours at IlluminatiRex.com, or just click the comics tab on mm -hmm. our website. Mm -hmm. And we'd like to thank all of our affiliates out there scattered throughout the uh, lovely United States and even uh, one in England, Media Underground, who you guys are really cool out there. I wanted to give you guys a special shout-out. So Thanks um, also to Aaron, our producer, and, of course, thanks to Mark. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Thank like you. like yeah. I said, and I think you proved us right tonight, one of the Southeast's leading experts yeah, on that was, Kabbalah, the that occult, was very interesting. and that was very such matters. Anyway, my name is Raymond Wiley. I'm Joe McFall. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.